91. Psalm 91 this morning. And God's word says this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Help us now. Uh, we, we understand clearly that you speak to us with your word and your spirit working together. Uh, do that for us, we pray. We get to meet with God. That's overwhelmingly uh, awesome to think about. It's wonderful. Help us now as we do that in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paula and I went, uh, oh, about five or six years ago, to hear the great Al Stewart in concert. And we knew he would do time passages and Year of the Cat and those things, but I, I had my front row seat, had my old album for him to sign afterwards. And he said, anybody uh, have anything that they'd like to hear? I'm like, trains, trains, trains. And uh, the guy he had with him said, well, he said, we were afraid somebody might say that, but nobody usually does. He said, that's a 20-year-old song that lasts about 10 minutes. I don't know if he would remember all the lyrics for that. Uh, so they sang something else. But I tell you, there is a song that this Scotsman wrote that is just absolutely overwhelming to me about trains, about growing up as a kid in Scotland. And he talks about how trains became the way that England and that, that, uh, that island uh, was connected. And he talks about what it was like and his school years passing by and him going into the city and riding the trains and saying things like, I think I stole a kiss or two while rolling down the clicking wheels of trains. And he sings about what it was like then uh, as 
the World War I approach and all those trains over Europe of people. Some were there just for legitimate business, but so many people there just to map out and how they could use those trains in, in, in war and, and what would happen as he thinks about uh, the silver rails spreading far and wide through the 19th century, some straight, some true, some serpentine from the cities to the sea. But then he says, then came surrender, then came the peace, then revolution out of the east, then came the crash, then came the tears, then came the 30s, the nightmare years. And then he says, but oh, what kind of trains are these that I never saw before? Snatching up the refugees from the ghettos of the war to stand confused with all their worldly goods beneath the watching guard's disdain as young and old go rolling on the clicking wheels of trains. The driver only does his job with vodka in his coat and he turns around and makes a sign with his hand across his throat. For days on end, through sun and snow, the destination still remains the same for those who ride with death above the clicking wheels of trains. Trains, what became of the innocence they had in childhood games? Painted red or blue, when I was young they all had names. Who will remember the ones who only rode in them to die? And he sums up and he says, all our lives are just a smudge of smoke against the sky. And he goes on to say, even 40 years later, he's riding on those trains uh, in the Amtrak from Philadelphia to New York, and it's the humming wheels of trains and not the clicking wheels of trains. But he thinks about his own life and how it's gone. And he just ends up by saying, all our lives are just a wisp of smoke against the sky. All our lives are just a smudge against the sky. And you think about uh, history rolling by, and not just your history, but the world's history. And it's easy to say, uh, to, to get so cynical and so hurt and say, what is there? Is this all there is? See, is that thought even biblical, that all our lives are just a wisp of smoke against the sky? Uh, Newsflash, it is biblical. It is biblical. Think of what uh, James told us in James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What is your life? James says, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I was teaching the youth group this one time. <laughs> Bo, he's 40 years old now, but he was a kid then. And, and I was using the old, I guess it would have been the old King James that just says your life is but a breath. And he started to chuckle over there. And I said, what are you thinking, Bo? He says, well, if my life's a breath, I just don't want it to be onion breath. I want it to be dentine breath. And I said, that's a good thought, actually. Uh, our lives are not here for a long time. It goes, it's here and it's gone. That's a biblical understanding. But then again, you have to take that biblical truth and plug it into uh, the whole of Scripture. Here's a children's catechism question for us. Do you have a soul that will last forever? And the little child says, yes, I have a soul that will last forever. And so your life on earth is a breath. It's a mist. 
It's a passing thing. Uh, as, as Al Stewart sang, a smudge of smoke against the sky. But you have an eternal destiny and you have a life that will live forever. And nowhere in scripture is that life described as just a mist or a breath. We think Christianly. And so we think about earth, but we really think and we are ready and we're geared toward eternal life. You have a home right now. Hey, maybe it's worth something. Maybe it's not. Maybe the market will crash and that home is value goes here and there. I've always tried to think of it myself and tell people, don't think of it as an investment. Don't think of it as a house. Think of it as a home where things happen. And uh, that's a more spiritual way. But you have a home on high that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place, uh, uh, preparing that for you. And that's our destination. That's where we're headed in this life. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen from one day to the next? About 12 years ago in Ukraine, did a tour of orphanages. And the first little baby I held, little Victor, first orphanage, man, I wanted to hold every baby. I wanted to see everything. I wanted to know all about orphans and abandoned kids in Ukraine. And I'm holding this little fella, and he's, you know, he's, he's interacting because all those children just want to be touched and loved. And the woman, one of the women who, uh, social worker who was working with them came up to me, and in her broken English, she said, uh, Victor, good. Victor, good. Good boy. She thought I was a prospective adoptive parent, and she was trying to sell me on this kid, trying to help the bond out, I think. And uh, Victor, good. She, he said, parents, bad. Wodka. And she went like this, wodka. Parents, bad. And I was holding this little guy, and I was thinking about him, and a lot of these kids are orphans in that they are just abandoned, or their parents uh, have issues and, 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 and can't take them and just farm them out. And uh, my friend, the pastor, came by and he said, he had no idea of her conversation, but he said, now, look at him. He said, this little boy's got some signs of some fetal alcohol. And uh, there's something about the little thing right underneath our nose and something about some fingers and and things like that. And he pointed that out. And I thought about that little guy. And war came. And that little fellow would be about 12 years old now if he's still alive. But then I thought about that woman. And what's she doing now? with a heart for the orphan. They got a gun in her hand waiting for people to come in so she can help defend her country. Think of all those women who were directors of the orphanages that we saw, about five or six of them, competence and compassion. Think of a conversation I had with one of the social workers who was our guide and and our translator. And uh, they all went into the supermarket and a couple of us just stayed out and talked with her. And she was talking, showing me pictures of her husband. And uh, she, he's, he's a fisherman. She goes, I think to fish is a good hobby, yes? I said, yeah, it's, it's a good hobby for him to have to fish. What are they doing today? In that place that some people say doesn't even matter. One of the orphanages, uh, we got down there on a Sunday morning. We were going to go to uh, church that day with a, with a congregation there. And uh, the orphanage, there had been a storm the night before, and they needed to pick up a generator. 
And I, I don't encourage you guys, this goes against, <laughs> I don't encourage you guys to do this. I opted out of church that day. I said, I really want to see, I want to go with our guide and with the pastor friend. I'd love to just go to see what a Ukrainian market is like, not in a tourist town. I just want to stand and watch the people. And, and, and um, I stood there, and they went off to barter for generators and all that and just watched. And remember, so much of, of, of the people, but there was a, a young girl pushing a, a hot beverage cart. And it was a cold day. Snow on the ground, but not a freezing cold day. And she's, people are coming up and they're giving her whatever their currency is. And she's giving them, looked like some purple liquid in, in some of them, some kind of tea or something. And I just stood there and I listened to her stop. And I guess her friend ran one of these hardware store little stalls in a marketplace. And they stopped and, and that was her break time. Her friend got her tea and they just stood there and they talked. And I wished I could understand what they were saying, but just to hear their voices. They're there now, quite likely. And as you pray for people, uh, I'm not even saying anything about all the politics and everybody doing all that, but understand there are people under stress. And those lives are, are nothing to so many of us but just a smudge of smoke against the sky. It's the casualty number. There's a little boy who was going to be adopted by the Italian family. Now, I told you about him, I think, before. And they were teaching him. They they'd signed all the adoption papers to get him. And, oh, they loved him. Mom and Dad, he's overeating pasta in Italy now, the way it goes. But they were teaching him to say ciao to us and, and teaching, teaching him a little Italian words even then. And you wonder about these people. You wonder. Orphanage was closest in range to Chernobyl, Uh, was quite an interesting one. And there were boys that came that had severe defects. One of them couldn't walk. He just crawled. And the the tops of his, what would have been the tops of his feet were then the bottoms of his feet. And he had calluses on the tops of his feet from crawling around. And I snuck off and went into a room and saw a girl who looked like like the Coneheads. Uh, She was in a crib and her head was about half the size of her body. And I was trying to make eye contact with her, but it was just blank. Just a blank. And I was trying, and then they came in and got me really fast because I wasn't supposed to be in that room. You know, if, she's, if she lived and maybe she had something where she couldn't, what, who's feeding these kids in these orphanages while war ravishes the land? And I can say you've never... Never done anything till you've been riding in a van across the Ukrainian countryside and you've got your iPad with you and the driver had a big personality. Uh, you could see from where he, his home, you could see Moldova from where he lived. But he said, you got any Beatles? And I said, matter of fact, I do. And we all sang, the pastors and the, the social workers, all the Ukrainians, we all sang back in the USSR. And they all loved the part about the Ukraine girls really knocked me out. Uh, and it was, and I said, I said, wasn't that a terrible time? They go, yes, it was, but it's a joke now. But I would say it's probably not a joke now. Understand, this life presents itself with twists and turns. Two months ago, some of those kids were opening their Christmas presents. Now they're either in Poland or on their way, or they're not alive, 
uh, but those Christmas presents and what those parents thought they were going to get them uh, don't matter. And we've lived in the world long enough, haven't we, to know that our own lives can take twists and turns. And we need, as Christians, to understand we can lock into something. There is a benefit to being a believer, even uh, in addition in addition to the home on high from which we've built, in addition to churches that we can go and worship with fellow believers around the world. There's something we need because this earth is fallen. We need to know that God is our refuge, that God is there to protect us. We need protection. I read some of the commentaries on this passage, and one of them kept talking about comparing this verse to like an insurance policy. At first I thought, well, that's sacrilegious because I was thinking you don't get saved, just, you know, people say for fire insurance to to not go to hell. Uh, But, you know, the more I examine this passage and as we get into it, that's not a bad approach to think of God saying, I will protect you against this, 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 and this, and there's no fine print. And we need to look at God's promise of protection for us. We know, and I'm wrapping up this series that we've had, we know that it's not all gloom and doom in life. We know there's great things in life. Uh, We're going to start through John 10 about I've come that they may have life, and we're going to talk about those things. But right now, uh, as we put a cap on this series, understand that there is something for you as a Christian. If I was a salesman and not a proclaimer, um, I, would, I, would, I would try and sell us all on, on this, become a Christian because of this. As it is, I get to be a proclaimer of the gospel and the Holy Spirit gets to do the work. But listen, you have a God who has said, you come to me and I will protect you. Let's look at this passage and see. Uh, three things this this um, morning, as, as we try to absorb this psalm, as we try to see our lives on earth as smoke against the sky, but our eternal home being there and our lives now being cared about and seen by God. Three points. One, your movement toward God as preparation for times of trouble. Two, God's movement on your behalf, physically and materially. And third, God's movement within you spiritually. First, your movement toward God as preparation for times of trouble. It has always been a wild, unpredictable world ever since the fall. And God's shelter is your insurance policy. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, it doesn't take very long in your Bibles. Like if you said... I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and if you only lasted like one or two days, you would at least have gotten to this part. Adam and Eve, sin. Banned from the garden. Promise of a new garden. Promise even during that of of the Messiah to come. But they're out there. And there's babies being born. And one baby murders the other baby. And you think of the grief and rage in that son that did the murdering, think of a mom's heart. We hate to see our kids fight, don't we? We hate to see little grudges and walls. 
Think of that. And, and they're thinking uh, themselves probably, my fault. I took the tree. I brought sin. Sin passed on down. Uh, no doubt they are really taking things on themselves that, uh, uh, as we would do. Where did I go wrong? Oh, Abel. The psalm was written by, and I put a question mark in my notes, because there's debate over these songs, psalms. Some of the psalms will tell you right up, a psalm of David, that was written by David. Some will say a psalm of Moses, that was written by Moses. Some will say a psalm of the sons of Asaph. That's not somebody trying to guess and inserting it. That's in the Hebrew text. This Hebrew text for this psalm does not tell us who. Somebody said, well, it's no doubt written uh, in the time of the exile because they would have needed it. And they look at intertextual clues and say that. Other people say, well, while this language for God has been around since Abraham, maybe it's Abraham. Look in verse uh, 1 and 2, or in verse 1, the Most High, the Almighty. People say the Most High, that's language for God from back in the days of Melchizedek. Uh, Genesis 14, verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then again, in Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And they say, the language of this psalm even points back to Abraham. Um, Boy, that language for God, not a bad idea, just practically speaking, for us to think of the names for God in the Bible that maybe aren't so common in our lives. Uh, God Most High. Usually when I pray, I go, Dear Heavenly Father, that's a good praise to a way to start a prayer because I am his son. He is my father in heaven. But sometimes it's not a bad idea to say, dear God most high, dear almighty, dear God, big names for God. And they're there and they are eternal. They're for us to pray to. But most people say this psalm was written uh, by Moses or in Moses' time. They talk about how it points all these various plagues and things point to Moses and, and uh, exile language and, and the plagues. And you can see uh, parallels. And, and, and boy, they, they spent a lot of time, a lot of good time. Uh, and I spent a lot of good time reading uh, how a lot of these uh, deliverances corresponded to the plagues. It's interesting, isn't it? And it's a passage that uh, Rick read for the New Testament reading. This portion of this psalm occurs in the New Testament. And you'd say, who quoted this in the New Testament? Jesus? Because Jesus did a lot of quoting of Old Testament passages. A lot of it. Uh, That's one way we know the Old Testament is uh, God's words, the way that the Son of God treated it when he was here. It wasn't Jesus who quoted this passage. Paul, did he quote it? No, the devil quoted it. The devil, in his temptations, uh, quoted this verse about uh, jump off and, and, uh, and, and he'll be able to protect you and, and he won't let your foot get cast against a stone. Hard times for Abram. Hard times for Moses. 
Hard times for the people in exile. Hard times for Jesus, tempted as we are out in the wilderness. And hard times for us. Do not kid yourself. Don't get lulled to sleep. Uh, Love the good days. Because they're not all good days. And in the hardest of times, what do God's people do? They turn to him. This is human nature. I've had to say so many times, and I bet you have too. Oh, God, please help me during this difficult time. And in the back of our heads, a lot of times is, please forgive me for not praying to you more. I don't, hope you don't mind if I come to you now when it's really urgent. You know what? I think God, who knows our frame and remembers that we're dust, uh, understands that. Family member spoke of a recent death within their family. And he told me, I'm praying more. I'm sorry that this happened. But boy, this is making me pray a whole lot more. It happens. And we come to God and we turn to God in our hardest times. Now about that Satan scripture quote. Did Satan quote scripture properly? Yes, he did. He quoted it right, but it was in the midst of he was trying to get Jesus to create an artificial crisis. Hey, jump off and see scripture uh, fulfilled here. Satan presented it as, as, a, as a way to test God. Somebody wrote this about that, saying, can you use this? Did Jesus refute that psalm when he said, don't test the Lord your God? Does that mean you as a Christian can't say that anymore? No, but listen to this. Uh, the person said, the promise does not give Jesus or the psalmist's contemporaries or us carte blanche to embark on any project that he or they or we may dream up, believing that it will be automatically covered by the policy. Rather, it is for those who love, acknowledge, and call upon God, and who in that spirit of devotion and submission want only to go his way and not their own. Those are the terms to which the insured party has to agree. To ignore them and then to expect his protection is, as Jesus said, a foolish and wicked attempt to put God to the test. In other words, I can't say. I'm going to go stop this war right now because I trust God. And I'm going to hop on a plane to Moscow or wherever, and I just believe God will get me right in, and I'm going to get that Putin, and I'm going to arrest him or worse, and God has to help me because it says that God won't let me stumble or fall. You go, wait a minute, that's not godly. That's foolishness. But as we live in our godly, ordinary lives, looking at Scripture and and living our lives, that's when we can call on God uh, to be our protector. You dwell in the shelter of the Most High. Line one is what you have to do. Line one of the psalm says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Line two is what happens is when you do that, you're abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. Note the personal nature of this. I will say to my God, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And at the same time as we claim that personally, my God, me, my walk with God, my shelter, we can exhort others as the psalmist did to also make him their God and shelter and fortress. He's preaching a filtered sermon, in other words. 
He's not being hypothetical about it. He's owned it and lived it and walked it. And he's not being hypocritical about it either. He's saying, I found this to be true. And it also will be true for you. In the same way in verse 9. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Lord who is my refuge. There is room in the shelter for all of us. Get in the shelter. Come to the shelter. You've made your movement toward God. Now, what is God's movement on your behalf? What is he promising in this policy? Uh, The sections, there there are two of them, verses 3 through 8 and verses 10 through 14. It starts with an acknowledgement of God, but then it just lists the various ways that God has promised to protect you. It's comprehensive. First, he talks about the snare of the fowler. Look at verse 3. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. The trap, the setup. Paul and I were talking about people we've known. We've talked about people who have fallen. And you're like, man, that, oh, so dumb. How could he be tricked by that woman that, that wasn't his wife? How could he fall into that trap? And we talk about it. Uh, honey pots and honey snares and all those, whatever our language is in there. And people that want to pull somebody down, they find where their weakness is and they can set them up. People refuse to give evidence to FBI committees because they say you don't want to fall into a trap. Uh, entrapment is, is part of our legal language. Uh, Jerome, uh, St. Jerome from centuries and centuries ago wrote this, The devil is a master of many snares, deceptions of all kinds. Avarice is one of his pitfalls. Disparagement is his noose. Fornication is his bait. As long as we are in the state of grace, our soul is at peace. But once we begin to play with sin, then our soul is in trouble and is like a boat tossed about by the waves. We prayed, didn't we? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, there's a protection against whoever's trying to see your downfall and plot you uh, on the way down. They want to see you go down. I had a friend who was living for Christ, doing his best. He was at his place of work, and he was talking about Jesus, and he was living it. And, boy, they would put the bad, dirty magazines there out where he was going to go fill out his paperwork, and then they'd stand around the corner and watch and see, hoping uh, he would fall for that so they could jump around the corner and laugh and, and say, you're just a hypocrite and you're no better than us, and we don't have to listen to you about hell. Uh, people do that. They watch for you to fall. They want that. And the psalmist said, deliver me, God. I'm going to run to your shelter. Deliver me, God, from the snare of the fowler. Next one, uh, translation issue here. ESV uh, gives it the deadly pestilence. Um, But the deadly pestilence is also talked about again in verse 6. This is a deal just with translation uh, where the consonants are all the same, but the vowel pointing, it could be pestilence. And and most people say uh, quite likely that is is the deadly um, word. Save me from the deadly word. Um, And this would tie in with this being a parallel to the Old Testament uh, and and Pharaoh's, uh, to the children of Israel in the Moses narrative. Pharaoh's word, 
I'm going to make you slaves. You have to do the bricks. His pronouncement, his word, and his word needed to be lifted for God's people to be free. And the psalmist writing here saying, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and fortress, he'll deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly word. In our case, think of the deadly words and pronouncements coming down the line. The increasing tightening of laws against freedom of worship and freedom of speech as the modern world's values unravel and spiral away from biblical values. And there are words and there are ways we need to be delivered from and we can be so scared. And the Bible says don't be scared. Trust your God. The terror of the night. You know, places like Ukraine right now, it is actual terror of the night. Our own selves, we would pray. I mean, what's the, what's the, the standard children's prayer? If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And some people have that fear at night. Whatever he's talking about. The arrow that flies by day. What would be a modern parallel to the arrow that flies by day? Uh, maybe the person driving the car coming to you that's texting and driving. And uh, you've probably been protected a lot more than you know from that. <laughs> the destruction that wastes at noonday. Jerome, again, likened it to public temptation uh, in the broader sense where thousands of people are doing one thing and saying, come in, come in, come in. And the person saying, I'm not going to let this event destroy me. Could be something else, the destruction that wastes at noonday. I'm thinking of a book on my shelf about depression called The Noonday Demon. Maybe that's what he had in mind. All we know is what we see is God saying, I'm your God, morning and night and noon, all of those times, and God's protection for you as his Christian is comprehensive. God doesn't say, man, I've been working 18 straight hours. I've got, I got to clock out now. I've got to get some sleep. We say that. God doesn't say that. God's protection is eternal for his people, for you. People falling at your side in verse 7. Then the next, it's talking about two perils, the stumbling foot and the dangerous beast. Uh, you can look at those and you can go in, but what I want us to see is... God's protection for you, you've run to him. You've run to God for your shelter. You've said in this topsy-turvy, crazy world, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust in God for everything that may come my way. Different ones of us have different things. God has said, I will protect you, and there's no area where you are not covered. Spiritual, physical, um, financial, any area, God is saying, you are covered by me. That's my stance toward you. You say, well, I can shoot a hole in that right now. Because what about those people? Those pictures you said you saw of, of, of the Christians and, and, and others uh, huddled in the basements, uh, scared of the rockets to fall. I don't know if all of our elders got it, but I got an, uh, an email yesterday from our clerk of our presbytery. Pray for, and he named the guy's name, the new pastor that's coming into the church in Boston. Bad car wreck. His mother-in-law is uh, brain dead and they're going to have to unplug her. And this pastor said, she was like a mom to me. Oh, she was so godly and so good. 
This is out of the blue. We didn't even see this coming. He says, we are gutted right now. Gutted was the word he used. And you say, all right, so you're up here uh, waxing eloquent or trying to or thinking you are or something about God's protection, but God doesn't always protect because what about just those two cases? And we can all add to that pile. Can I quote this psalm to you with a straight face? Yes, because it is the word of God. How do we understand these things then? I would say a good place to go is Romans 8.28. A good place to go is what I did at the start, talking about these things being fleeting and but a breath, but our home on high being eternal. We don't understand everything about everything. I've done this before. I'll, I'll, I'll do this to Anna again. My daughter was, was friends with Anna's daughter. And I had to get on Facebook and social. And I was like, like a spy and keep an eye on. And, and when your daughter put, put a quote on there that said, uh, everything will work out all right in the end. If it's not working out, that just means it's not the end. That helped me. I'm like, ooh, I learned from her. Um, Spurgeon said it this way. And this is maybe the best way for us to get this. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. You say, this is a bad thing that happened. That's not bad. That's good in a mysterious form because God is good and God is love. Spurgeon went on to say, losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is is his gain. No evil in the strict sense can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Classic biblical example is Joseph and his brothers. Joseph saying, you meant it for evil, and they did, but God meant it for good. And so we don't know the whole story and the whole picture. And I can say God promises his protection, and he has always kept his word. Last point, after we've looked at our movement toward God as our shelter, the one we come to for protection, after we've looked at what God says in the comprehensive way God says he will protect us, last point, consider God's movement inside of you spiritually. Verses 15 and 16, which say this, When he calls to me, I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You hold fast to him in love. You say, how do I generate this love toward God? Good question. Answer. Uh, good, good place to find that answer is one of the many places in Scripture is 1 John four nineteen. We love him because he first loved us. And God even gives you the love to love him. God's called you You've repented. You've put your faith in God. Uh, You just go to him in love that he's given you. He equipped you to do this. If it's been a while since you've done that, ask him to renew you in that way. Call out to him. Say, my heart feels a little cold right now toward you, God. I I think I respect you, but I'm not sure uh, that I'm demonstrating that I love you. Uh, Renew the love. Let me love you. Or as I wrote, when I wrote this sermon, God, I've been acting like a fool and taking you for granted. 
complaining about you in my spirit. I'm weak. Open my eyes to see you for who you are. Make me love you all over again. I think God would love to hear that prayer. If you need to pray it. He says, I'll satisfy you with long life. The mother-in-law, who they're going to unplug here shortly. Long life. Oh, a long life for her. Eternity. A billion times a billion. Times a billion. Times a billion. And I could say that times a billion uh, till 12 o'clock. And that still would be just like a day in heaven. He satisfied her with long life. And she's satisfied when she gets to heaven. Didn't Jesus say, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And look at this as we come to the end of this sermon. Look at the dialogue, the talking between God and God's people. You can talk to God. You can pray to God. You can talk to him. He is willing to listen. He doesn't have to say, wait a minute, I'm I'm in the middle of uh, cooking this, or I'm in the middle of driving. I can't can't drive and talk at the same. God doesn't have those kinds of uh, things that we have. Talk to him. Call him and he answers you. And he says he's not just going to rescue you, but honor you. Let your mind roll around that. He satisfies you. He saved you. He's protecting you. And he talks to you. How can this be? Well, there was a time when the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus, went to Golgotha and hung on a cross after being tortured. Uh, humanly, they tortured him as much as they could humanly. He went to the cross and experienced something spiritually that was uh, deeper than, than the physical that he had to endure. And what did he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he was paying for your sins, as his forsakenness, his isolation was taking place so that you in your sinfulness could talk to him. We can say, if we want to counter God, Jesus' comment on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you loved me? Why is your door always open to me? And you mean it, and every time I've tried, uh, he was forsaken, he was despised and rejected so that we could be received by God. What a trade. And that part of that trade-off, his righteousness uh, for your, your righteousness, for his taking your sin, all of that trade, part of that trade is you having that God for your shelter. And my hope is that you experience not just the, the peace that passes understanding in a hard time, but also what the psalm also talks about in the midst of that, the personal, intimate communion with God all over again. And then I just tacked this on. This was a last-minute add-on as we pray and go to the table. I would just say this. How can you be all of these things to the people you love when you can't even protect yourself? Why are you trying to be God and be the shelter? You cannot be anybody's God. You cannot be anybody's shelter. You cannot be anybody's strong tower. 
Now, God may use you to provide that uh, temporarily in somebody's life and, and one aspect of that, but you can't be comprehensive. Uh, that's only God. We try so hard to assume the role of God in people's lives. And God does use us, thankfully, to provide limited protection in some cases. But isn't it best for all of us to do what the psalmist did? I am running to God for my shelter. You come too. That's our, that's our message. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for Psalm 91. Thank you that you are a shelter in the time of storm. Thank you that you are the rock in whom we hide. Thank you that all of these things that we know about you, that you've proven over and over again. Thank you for being our strong tower. Thank you for the shelter of your wings. Thank you for being our fortress. Thank you for being everything you are. And Lord, uh, help us to see it and appreciate it and feel safe and warm because we are safe and warm in your loving, powerful hands. In Jesus' name, amen.